You take your Bibles and turn them with me to uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel, chapter 11. I was, uh, I was reading an article a few days ago, and uh, they were asking some, uh, some well-known and respected preachers, uh, what, what's the most difficult text there is uh, in, in the Bible to preach that you've ever preached? And uh, wouldn't you know it, Daniel 11 showed up. Uh, on that list, that was, very, that was very encouraging. Um, read, uh, read, there's another uh, commentator who just, who said, this, this, this text, you just can't really preach through this text. <laughs> that was encouraging as well. But here we are, Daniel chapter 11, and uh, we're going to preach this text because we believe that every single word of the Bible is the Word of God, and it is profitable and useful uh, for everyone. But if you are new to the Bible, if you're new here, uh, you may find this to be some challenging uh, reading this morning. But again, trusting that God is going to work through His all-sufficient and powerful Word. Daniel chapter 11. The, uh, the book of Daniel is all about survival. How do the people of God survive and even thrive during times of enormous trial pressure, difficulty, and affliction. Now, Daniel knew about this better than most. As a teenager, Daniel was captured by the Babylonians who had invaded Daniel's homeland in Israel, and many Jews were taken and sent into exile. They were dispersed throughout the Babylonian empire. Uh, They were in a very strange land in a time of affliction and persecution. It was a time uh, that they were tempted to compromise their faith and assimilate to a culture that was hostile to everything they believed in. It was a time that seemed like evil despots and tyrants and God-haters were winning the day. And the book of Daniel is a survival manual for God's exiles then and a survival manual for you, you, whom the Apostle Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 as an elect exile of the dispersion. Because you, as the Scripture says, are in the world, but you are not of the world. You are a stranger and a sojourner in a world that is vehemently opposed to everything you believe in, where rebellion against God abounds, where Christians are mocked and marginalized here and are persecuted abroad, and you increasingly realize that you don't belong here ultimately. But God has you here, in this place, in this time, for a time, so how now shall you live? That's what the book of Daniel is all about. So, I hope you found the chapter, Daniel chapter 11. Please stand with me now in honor and reverence for the reading of the holy and inspired Word of God. It's Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 2 and read on down through verse 35. God's Word says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven." But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. 
Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail." He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, and it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall be cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, 
but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, This is your holy and inspired word. It can be a difficult word. It can be a complicated word as it is in this case. But it is your word nonetheless and you have a purpose for your word. And you have a purpose for your word for this people in this room this morning. So Father, I pray that you would give us insight into this prophecy that you have given to Daniel. And I pray that you would help us to see what it meant and what it means for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Do you know now why people say that's a tough passage to preach? I hope you do. It should have been a happy time for Daniel. God had promised the people that after 70 years they would be released from captivity. God had promised there would be a grand restoration of Israel. There were prophecies that pointed to a a golden age for God's people, a time of peace and prosperity and power under an all-powerful, righteous, messianic king. It would be heaven on earth. And Daniel and other Jews who remained faithful to God longed for that time to come. They prayed for that time to come. Uh, they, They were patiently waiting for that moment and time passed on. And true to God's word, the Babylonian Empire fell and the Medo Persian Empire became the next great world power. And also true to God's word, King Cyrus of the Persian kingdom would grant an end to the captivity. It should have been a happy time. But as we saw last week in chapter 10, Daniel has been in a state of mourning for three weeks. He's been concerned about the future of his people. Uh, Yes, the Jews have been released, but only a handful of them have returned to the promised land. Yes, the Jews were permitted to go home and rebuild the temple, and yet it still lay in ruin. And the handful that had returned were committed, and they were committed to the rebuilding, and yet they were facing serious and violent opposition. In in chapter 10, verse 4, Daniel tells us that the, the time that he receives this prophecy is the time of the Jewish Passover, a time meant for joy, uh, for celebration, 
for remembering the great supernatural exodus that God's people experienced hundreds of years prior when they were slaves in Egypt. And a million people emerged from captivity, mighty and powerful thanks to the hand of God, and they were on their way to the land that God promised to give them. And yet, the Jews in Daniel's day, what they are experiencing now in their return from captivity, that doesn't even hold a candle to the great exodus that happened so long ago. And so instead of great joy and celebration, Daniel is in a state of mourning and tears. And as the old prophet prays and weeps over all of this, we realize with Daniel one of the main themes of the whole book, and it's this, you and your people are in exile, Daniel, but it's not just exile in Babylon. And there's going to be a deliverance from exile. There's going to be an exodus. But Daniel, you need more than this exodus. Because even when the people return home, they're not really home yet. There is a better exodus, a better rest for the people of God yet to come. The road ahead for God's people will be much longer and harder than any had realized. And so, as we saw in chapter 10 last week in response to Daniel's prayer, God gives him a revelation about a great conflict. Conflict that rages in the heavenly realms between invisible, cosmic, angelic forces of good and evil. That there's more happening than meets the eye. And so the opposition and the difficulty that God's people were facing in the physical, visible realm was an extension of this cosmic conflict. What goes on in the heavenly realms affects what goes on in the physical realm and vice versa. And so, as we saw last week, God sends Daniel an angel to show him what's going to happen to his people in the latter days. This is Daniel's concern Here comes the answer. And chapter 11 is the unfolding of that revelation, and it extends into chapter 12. Now, chapter 11, you may not not believe this based on what you just heard, all that confusing stuff that you heard me read, but chapter 11 is actually one of the most amazing sections in the Bible, one of the most amazing sections of predictive prophecy in the entire Scripture. The level of detail and accuracy in this prophecy and its fulfillment in history is so spot on that liberal, unbelieving scholars say that there is no way that Daniel could have written this book in the 6th century B.C. Somebody must have written this way after the fact, made it look like prophecy, and then they just attached Daniel's name to it. That's what many people believe. But on the contrary, there is overwhelming evidence for an early date for Daniel's authorship. And if you're interested in that, I don't have time to get into that today, this morning, but I'm happy to direct you to resources where you can do more of that research on your own. Now, I was tempted to go verse by verse through this section and give you a blow-by-blow account of what specific historic events fulfill each verse here. And some of you who really, really like history, you're history geeks, You'd really like that. Others, not so much. But regardless, we're pressed for time here, so, um, so we're going to hit a few highlights, 
and perhaps that will whet your appetite and encourage some further study on your own. I can't do all the work for you. You've got to do some yourself. But I want us in this section to see at least three significant themes that God wants his suffering, exiled people to lay hold of. And the first thing that we see is the vain futility of the wicked. The vain futility of the wicked. Look with me at verse 2. Now I will show you the truth. This is the angel talking to Daniel. Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Okay, so let's remember in this moment, Daniel is living in the Persian Empire under King Cyrus. But after Cyrus, three more kings are going to come, and then another, and the text says that he's richer than all of them. And we know from history that this fourth one is King Xerxes. He ruled from 486 to 465 B.C., You might know him as King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. This is Queen Esther's husband. Xerxes ruled during the peak of Persian power. Enormous wealth this man had. But he made a mistake. He picked on Greece. Greece at that time wasn't united. It was a a loose collection of, of independent states. They probably seemed easy picking for Persia. But again, look at verse 2. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Xerxes invaded Greece and was defeated at the battle of Salamis. And that was the beginning of the end of Persia. And it was the beginnings of Greek dominance. The Greeks realized that they are better together than they are divided. And they begin to get stronger. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now this is Alexander the Great. And he leads the Greeks to do away with the Persians once and for all. He becomes the greatest conqueror the world's ever seen up to that point. But it all comes crashing down at the height of his power. Verse 4. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. In 323 B.C., Alexander dies young. His children are murdered. And four of his generals take his kingdom. That's what it means in verse 4. His his kingdom is divided towards the four winds of heaven. And the remnants of Alexander's empire never again achieve the same heights of power and glory. That's what verse 4 means when it says nor according to the authority with which he ruled. Now, from this point forward, the prophecy is going to focus on two of the four remnants of Alexander's kingdom. The kingdom of the uh, the Ptolemies, based in Egypt, and the kingdom of the Seleucids, based in Syria, north and south. You're going to see that throughout this chapter, north and south. That's written from the perspective of Israel, which chapter 11 calls the glorious land. Syria to the north, Egypt to the south. You're going to notice a lot of talk in this chapter about kings of the north and kings of the south. They're not all the same king. It applies this term, king of the south, for different people. And the term king of the north for different people that are ruling over those kingdoms. And these two kingdoms, these dynasties, are going to be in constant conflict with one another in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. And these prophecies cover... That time span. And what we're going to see is an unfolding drama of power, deceit, intrigue, betrayal, greed, warfare, 
with God's people in Israel caught right in the middle of all of it. Let's look at a couple more examples of how accurately Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled in history. Go down to verse 6. It says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. History tells us that around 250 B.C., Ptolemy II attempts to make peace with Antiochus II by sending his daughter, Bernice, to marry him. Now, on the surface, that might seem like a good plan, but there's a little wrinkle in that. Antiochus is already married to a woman named Laodice. But Antiochus tries to fix that problem by divorcing Laodice and disinheriting her sons. Laodice naturally doesn't take that too kindly, and she ends up poisoning both Antiochus and Bernice along with their young sons. That's what is meant in verse 6 when it says, But she, that's Bernice, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, And he who supported her in those times. So Bernice's father dies in Egypt not long after this. And then you go to verse 7 and it says, And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. In other words, that's somebody from Bernice's family. This person turns out to be Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III. He gets revenge on the north, invades the Seleucid kingdom, and is very successful, as verse 7 predicts. Look at verse 7. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And so he does. He, he conquers the capital, he executes Laodice, and he plunders the north's treasure, exactly as Daniel predicts. Verse 8, he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. History tells us that Ptolemy brought back so much treasure that the native Egyptians bestowed upon him the title benefactor. Now, you don't have to understand or identify every single person or historical event mentioned in this passage to get one of the main points here, and this is the vain futility of the wicked. Godless man's best efforts to obtain greatness, glory, power, wealth, even peace, all of those efforts fall totally short. And like a constant drumbeat, the theme appears over and over and over again in this chapter. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible, whenever you see that, you're meant to pay close attention. Notice the repetition. Verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken. So at the height of Alexander's uh, power, his empire is shattered. Verse verse 6b says, after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But, and that word but is going to keep coming up over and over again. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Verse 11 Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. This refers to a battle in 217 B.C. when Antiochus III from the north attacks Ptolemy IV in the south and is decimated. He has a huge army, tens of thousands of of troops and and elephants even, but but Antiochus loses 17,000 men, Ptolemy just 2,000. And then, of course, in verse 12, Ptolemy IV gets a very large head after such a stunning victory. And it says, when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. 
And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Go down to verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. Now, this, this was fulfilled when Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V to try to gain influence in the southern kingdom. And does it work? Into verse 17. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Cleopatra ended up loving her husband and loving all things Egyptian, and so she was more loyal to Ptolemy than to her own father. Or, one more, verse 18. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. This refers to Antiochus III. He's been on a roll capturing many of the Mediterranean islands, but, there it is again, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. This refers to something that happened in 192 B.C. While Antiochus was moving forward with his conquest, he received a warning from a little up-and-coming kingdom called Rome. Perhaps you heard of them. The Romans tell Antiochus to stay out of Greece. Antiochus says, watch me. He invades Greece, and the Romans engage him. Antiochus had 70,000 men. The Romans had only 30,000. You want to guess who won? The Romans gave him a sound beating, embarrassing and humiliating him. I could give you more examples, but I hope you get the point. From king to king, from empire to empire, at the end of the day, what's all of the effort for? Ian Duguid writes this. He says, on one level, it, this passage, is a continual story of wars. As one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Yet, though the tide in the affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all of their toil? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Alexander the Great. How high and mighty and awesome was he. The earth trembled at his feet. People were terrified of him. What a great warrior. What a great man. What a great power. And how much space does this impressive ruler get in chapter 11. He gets a verse. Thousands of pages have been written about this man in secular history. He gets a verse here. The rulers of this earth are like grasshoppers, as the prophet Isaiah says. Alexander the Great, on the one hand, 30 years of earthly glory and might. And the price for it? He's been in hell now for over 2,000 years. With trillions more to go. It was all for a lie. It was all empty. It was all vain. The prophet Jeremiah captures the essence of this vain futility when he writes in Jeremiah 51, 58, The people's labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only for fire. 
judgment. The Lord Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You don't have to be Alexander the Great or Ptolemy the Fourth or Cleopatra to waste your life. All you have to do is devote yourself to the pursuit of anything outside of God, whether that be money or popularity or entertainment or your dreams or a happy, healthy family. In the end, none of these things will save. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. Ecclesiastes 5 also says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And so we see the vain futility of the wicked. We also see the invincible purposes of God. The invincible purposes of God. This is the exact opposite of the first point. Man's efforts are futile. But God does as he pleases. Man tries to control his future, but ultimately it's God who shapes history. The angel told Daniel back in chapter 10, verse 21, that the events of chapter 11 are inscribed in something called the book of truth. Everything here, everything, from Alexander's rise and fall to the successes and failures of the various Uh, uh, Ptolemaic and Seleucid kings, even to the persecution of the people of God revealed later on in this chapter. All of these things have been ordained by God. They're in the sphere of God's sovereign control. We often say that history is His story. And that's true, but it just doesn't mean that history is about Him, though it is. It also means that the story of history is his. In the sense that he is the author of history. He's not just the main character. He's the writer. He is the author of the book of truth. There are other clear indications of God's sovereign purpose in chapter 11. There's a phrase that keeps showing up. For example, you'll see it. Verse 27 They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Or verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. Or into verse 35, it still awaits the appointed time. Somebody is appointing something. The events that happen are not chance. They're not random. They are divine appointments. And the clear message here is that the movers and shakers in the world, from Alexander the Great to Donald Trump, the movers and shakers in the world aren't in control of history. And has this not been the theme since the very beginning of the book of Daniel? You remember a few weeks ago when we started this journey through Daniel, the very first thing we're confronted with in this book is the complete control of God over everything. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, we're told of Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Judah and the captivity of the Jews. But in verse 2, the curtain is peeled back and we're told that the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar resisted this truth with every fiber of his being. He hated that because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be Lord. He wanted to be sovereign. But eventually, as we saw in chapter 4, God humbles him and he acknowledges the great truth that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, if this is true, that means that God's people can have the confidence that there is nothing that can happen in the world that hasn't already been planned and purposed by God. The tyrant over there in North Korea... He's only there because God has raised him up for a purpose. And as soon as God is finished with him, he will be pushed off the stage like Xerxes, like Alexander. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. Even the scary, dark, invisible, demonic powers that we met last week in chapter 10. All things are created by Christ and for Christ, for his purposes. Now I know sometimes folks get nervous about this idea of God's control over everything. But the doctrine of God's sovereignty over everything, even over history, isn't meant to scare you. It's meant to comfort you. If God isn't totally sovereign, there isn't any guarantee that he will win. If he isn't totally in control, there isn't any reason to believe that his people will win with him. The book of Daniel teaches us that the only people who should be in consternation and should be in an uproar about God's sovereignty is God's enemies. Because for God's people, for you, for me, His sovereignty is always bent towards His people to do His people good. Every time. Even in the difficult times, as we'll see shortly. The vain futility of the wicked... The invincible purposes of God. And finally, we see the courageous perseverance of God's people. This prophecy in chapter 11 gets darker as we are introduced to one of the most vile and hated villains in Jewish history. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is Antiochus IV. He took on the name Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. He was a humble man, wasn't he? He was devoted to the Greek god Zeus. And he saw himself as the visible manifestation or avatar of Zeus. Others called him not Epiphanes, but Epimenes, which means madman. He actually wasn't in line for the throne, as it tells you there in verse 21. But through smooth talk, political intrigue, scheming, manipulation, he was able to get the throne for himself. Can I I just remind you, this is a prophecy written hundreds of years before it actually happened. Uh, Keep that in mind. Even if you are bored with history and hate it, be amazed 
by the accuracy of God's word in this prophetic revelation. He wasn't in line for the throne, but he secures it anyway. Now, by this time, the Seleucid kingdom has taken control of Israel. You'll find that earlier in the, in the prophecy. And so the Seleucids are in dominion over the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes was a vicious man. He plundered the temple in Jerusalem. He slaughtered thousands upon thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of Jews. But oddly enough, on the other hand, he was also a very persuasive man. And he could often seduce people to his side with his smooth talk, or as it says in verse 21, his flatteries. Now, the next few verses are going to describe Antiochus' ongoing war against the southern kingdom in Egypt. And in 168, Antiochus is ready to take Egypt again. But he hits a roadblock. Verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. In other words, there was a previous excursion that Antiochus had into Egypt and was very, very successful. But verse 29 is telling you that this next time is not going to be the same. The outcome is different. Why? For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Ships of Katim. These are ships from Rome. That little up-and-coming power. They're a little stronger now. And Rome wasn't interested in Antiochus expanding into Egypt. And so the Roman consul, Gaius Laenus, Gaius got off of his ship alone and approached Antiochus, demanding that he withdraw. Now remember, Antiochus is stuck up and arrogant. He's proud, and he's wanting to save face in front of his buddies. And he laughs, and he says, I'm going to consult with my people, with my friends. Gaius doesn't let him do that. History tells us that Gaius took a long stick, and he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he said, before you step out of that circle, you're making a decision. That's typical Roman arrogance, isn't it? You got arrogance on one side, arrogance on the other side. No honor among thieves. And despite his bravado, Antiochus was in no way interested in tangling with the Romans. And he was intimidated, and so he complied. Exactly as Daniel predicts here, he becomes afraid. But he was utterly embarrassed and humiliated. And verse 30 shows us what he does in his rage. Verse 30 he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. That refers to, to the Jews. In his fury, he takes action against the Jews. The text then says, he shall pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. These are apostate Jews. These are Jews that have uh, forsaken God. They are, they're allied with Antiochus. He pretended, Antiochus pretended to be peaceably disposed to the Jews, but on one Sabbath day, he parades his men, there's a parade, he parades his men fully armed in the city, people are looking on at the parade, and then suddenly he massacres those Jews who stood by as spectators. He unleashes a reign of terror on the Jews. He demands that the Jews give up their religious customs, that they profane the Sabbath, they sacrifice to idols, he forbids the right of circumcision. 
His men burn copies of the Torah, of the Scriptures, and anyone caught in possession of the Scriptures, they were put to death. Children were tortured to death in front of their siblings and parents if they did not recant their faith. He killed babies who were circumcised, and he hung their dead bodies around the necks of their mothers. He was a vicious madman, and he was intent on completely wiping out the worship of Israel's God. His goal was um, Hellenization. He wanted to Hellenize or Greekify Israel, making it totally Greek. Greek customs, Greek practice, Greek religion. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Pastor Steve described a couple weeks ago how this word abomination so often in the scriptures is used in connection with heinous, profane worship of idols, profaning the one true God. And we know from history that Antiochus, he outlawed the regular Jewish sacrifices. He himself enters God's holy temple in Jerusalem. He takes a pig. He sacrifices on the altar. And he offers up the pig blood as an offering to Zeus. There's pretty much nothing you could have done as profaning as this to Jewish people. And so it was a very dark time in Israel And we know, unfortunately, that many apostate Jews submitted to Antiochus. And many were rewarded by the king for supporting him. Uh, The high priest during that time was pretty much on Antiochus' payroll. And this defection, uh, this betrayal of the faith, is predicted in verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But there is one bright spot in those dark times. Verse 32 continues. It says, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The King James Version says, Those who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Here's a wonderful moment in this prophecy as poor Daniel surely is reeling in the wake of so much darkness. God God gives Daniel the assurance that he will have a faithful remnant who will not abandon their God, who will not compromise, they will stand firm. Now, if you're interested in history and you want more information about all the things that were going on during this time, you can read the book of 1 Maccabees. You're like, that's not in the Bible. You're right. It's not in the Bible. It should not be in your Bible. It's not meant to be a part of the Bible. It's not inspired scripture. But 1 and 2 Maccabees does contain helpful historical information about the intertestamental period. That's the period of time between the Old and New Testament. And and, and 1 Maccabees says this, But many people in Israel firmly resisted the king's decree and refused to eat food that was ritually unclean. They preferred to die rather than break the holy covenant and eat unclean food. And many did die, it says. But as God's people died by the thousands, God would be faithful to raise up more to take their place. By the way, this is the period of time of, of, the, of, uh, of Judas Maccabees. You might have heard of him, Judas the Hammer and the Maccabean Revolt, as many Jews uh, began to fight for their freedom against Antiochus. 
But the book of Daniel here in chapter 11 tells us that that God would raise up leaders to provide encouragement and spiritual teaching during these dark days. You look at verse 33. It says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Now, who are these? The, The wise. Well, they are those who have insight. They're those who have faith in God. They're those who rely on His Word. They're people who fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Scripture tells us. These are people who live by faith in the promises of God. And therefore, they have a divine viewpoint over everything that's going on. And that's the key. That's the key for God's exiles living in a world full of hostility and opposition then and now. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Those are the people who stand firm. Those who know their God. That's the difference maker. A.W. Tozer said that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's not how talented you are, how charismatic you are, how impressive to the world you are. What you know and what you believe and receive about God is most significant about you. And so Jeremiah chapter 9 says this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Knowing God. Knowing God entails both a relational aspect and a knowledge of God's ways and promises and character and a knowledge of His Word. Knowledge of God is at a low point in today's Western culture. It's one reason why many churches and believers are weak and anemic. We want to hear all about ourselves. What we really need to hear about is God. We need to know about God. We need to know God. If you don't know God, how are you going to stand during difficulty? The psalmist says in Psalm 9:10, And those who know your name put their trust in you. Your faith can never rise above your knowledge of Him. And so the best thing that you can do that's going to put a, put, a, put a rod of iron in your backbone, a rod of steel in your backbone, is to know who God is. What do you think gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the courage, back in Daniel chapter 3, the courage not to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image? What gave them the courage to be willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace? They knew God. They knew the truth about God. If they did not believe that God was in control of every minute detail in the universe, they would have given in to fear. If they did not believe that having God and perishing in the flames was actually a better deal than not having God and living a life of comfort for 70 years in Babylon... They would have just thrown in their allegiance with the king, like the apostate Jews did with Antiochus Epiphanes. This is what separated the faithful Jews from the covenant breakers who sided with the madman. The covenant breakers who wanted to be accepted by the world. But the faithful know that the accolades and treasures and pleasures of this world pale in comparison to what you receive in God. Those who know God are able to take action and carry out Great exploits for God during times of persecution, suffering, and affliction. Because they know God's character, they know God's promises, they know that God is sovereign, and He is the God who controls history. Now, 
you're not being hunted down by an evil king, and no one's threatening to throw you in a fiery furnace. But let me ask you this. Are you tempted in your life to fear? Are you bound up in fear, bound up in the anxiety of worrying about what other people think of you? Are you afraid to take a stand for God and your family, in your workplace? Are you afraid to tell people about Christ even though you know you should? You need to know your God. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action and carry out great exploits. Teenagers, what are you going to do when you're tempted by your peers to do something that you know is wrong? I don't care if it's something as little, quote, little, as crude joking and gossip, or if it's sexual immorality, or engaging in anything that dishonors God. How are you going to have a backbone of steel in that moment to do what is right? You must know God. Friends, some of you are like, well, man, if they start persecuting Christians... I'm going to take a stand, and I'll go to jail if need be. No, you won't. Because if you're afraid to take a stand for God now in the quote-unquote little things, then when the heat is really turned up, you will totally cave. I promise you. So know God. Let the knowledge of God and His promises and His character and His attributes saturate your mind, get into your heart, And as you do, you'll be shaped into a man, a woman, a boy, a girl who will stand firm, who will take action and carry out great exploits. One more reason why God's people can have courage. Verse 35. Verse 35 says, Some of the wise shall stumble, which means during this time of affliction, the people of God will suffer even unto death. But even this is part of the plan it's accomplishing something Antiochus doesn't even recognize or intend. Look again at verse 35, for the purpose of this affliction. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. In other words, the affliction of God's people actually has a strengthening, purifying effect on the faithful community. That's not what Antiochus wants. He wants to stamp out the faith. But its efforts to stamp it out are actually a part of God's plan to strengthen it. And that's part of an ongoing pattern that we see throughout the Scriptures. Way back in Genesis, the, the, the wicked brothers of Joseph sold him into slavery to get rid of him. And, and yet the very act of rebellion ended up being the means that God would use to protect and preserve his people. And so Joseph could say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see that pattern continue into the New Testament where James writes his epistle to Christians like you and like me. And he says this in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Notice that. James is using exile language and he's applying it to you. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your affliction isn't random. Your trial isn't a sign that Satan is winning. Instead, even your darkest moments are being used by God right now to work out something incredible and powerful in your life. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. This pattern... This pattern is ultimately climaxed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his final hours, it seemed as if the powers of darkness were in control. It seemed like evil had the upper hand. And the evil Roman governor Pontius Pilate stands before a beaten, 
battered, humiliated, and bound Jesus. And Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know I have the power to release you or crucify you? And Jesus turns to Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There it is again. Sounds like Daniel theology, doesn't it? Jesus knows his father. He knows God is in control. He knows that everything that happens to him, even evil things, it's all part of God's sovereign plan. And he knows his father is good. And he knows his father is faithful. And he knows God better than any other man that has ever lived. Those who know God will stand firm, take action, and do great exploits. And Jesus Christ does the greatest exploit in all of history. He lets Pilate's soldiers nail him to a cross. And in that moment, as the forces of evil do their worst, God is working. And on the cross, God wins. Christ dies for sinners, absorbing the wrath of God that sinners deserve, so that all who trust in Him might have their sins forever paid for. What Alexander the Great didn't realize, what the evil madman Antiochus didn't realize, what Pontius Pilate didn't realize, And what the devil must hate more than anything else is that history is his story. To the great frustration of God's enemies, but to our great hope and joy. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you are in control of everything. Thank you that you're not a God sitting around wringing your hands, wondering what you're going to do, how you're going to solve this problem, how you're going to work in this situation. Your God is always in control. And even when the enemies of God do their worst, they are unwittingly serving your purposes, and you win every time. And that means those of us who are your people win with you. Thank you for that. Father, thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to be an offering for sin. Father, I pray for anybody in this room who came into this building this morning as a, as a rebel against God. Maybe not like Alexander the Great, but a little tyrant in their own right, shaking their fist against God, demanding their own way, wanting to be Lord instead of having you as Lord. Father, I pray for any such person in this room that this day they might know salvation through Jesus Christ, that you might awaken faith in their hearts, that they might come to trust in you, and that they would stop living a life of vanity and uselessness, stop wasting their life, and that they would find abundant life in you. Thank you, Father, for Daniel chapter 11, a hard text, but an inspired text. And we thank you that your word has done its work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.